Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 358. At that point in time, my reasons for ending my life were over. I was going to begin something new, turning a negative into a positive. That's what I did. Hi, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. My name is Jeff. This is the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. To help with that, I'm joined each and every week by an author to chat about their latest book and their unique insights on things like personal and professional development, leadership, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and entrepreneurship, among other things. Today, we're joined by NFL great Reggie Williams as we dive into his new book, Resilient by Nature, Reflections from a Life of Winning on and Off the Football Field. I'll ask Reggie to share about what the city of Cincinnati taught him about principles and character, his vision for authenticity as an executive while at Disney, the role his mother played in instilling in him a love for reading, and lots more. Reggie's had the type of life that most people just dream up, yet he's also faced a number of hurdles, not the least of which is nearly losing his leg to amputation as the result of repeated knee injuries while playing football. We'll learn how he managed to fight against the odds to make it into the NFL and eventually take on that special role at Disney. Hey, I want to ask real quick, if the Read to Lead podcast has been helpful to you in some way, would you consider pre-ordering my book coming out in August of this year? It's called Read to Lead, the simple habit that expands your influence and boosts your career. In addition, for making a case for why you and everyone you know should be reading more consistently and intentionally, the book lays out how to make that a reality and how to make the most of what you're reading to put in practice what you learn. I hope you'll check it out. It's available for pre-order on Amazon right now. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash book to pre-order a physical copy today. Reggie Williams is a former NFL linebacker and college football Hall of Famer who was instrumental in building a sports-themed empire during his tenure as a Disney executive. Uh, It was our mutual uh, friend, Jody Mayberry, who connected us. Jody's got a a, a huge connection to Disney and many of the folks there. Thank you, Jody, if you're listening. Uh, During Reggie's 14 years with the Bengals, he was honored as the Walter Payton Man of the Year for his community service and later served on the Cincinnati City Council while active as a pro athlete, which I don't believe has happened before or since. Uh, He's also had stints as GM of the New York, New Jersey Knights of the World League of American Football and as an NFL executive who established the first NFL youth education town. He's also an author, and his new book with Jarrett Bell is called Resilient by Nature, Reflections from a Life of Winning on and Off the Football Field. And I'm excited to have him here. Reggie, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm excited to be here on your podcast, Jeff. I mean, Read to Lead uh, says it all in uh, my lifelong pursuit of the love of reading. 
I'm thrilled to hear that. And I'll have a, a question for you later on related to that uh, habit of reading and certainly uh, would love to pick your brain as to some of your favorite books. Along the same line, speaking of books, so many say that they have a book in them. I think I've read 80, 81% of the population says they hope to write a book someday, but the reality is maybe 1% of that group actually does it and, and you're one of them. So I'd love to know what spurred you on in the beginning to write this well, this book came about because I had uh, originally planned on doing a book back in 2008 and had been approached by George Will, who's a writer then for the New York Post. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a book that was going to cover all of the series of operations that I had in 2008 to save my right leg from amputation. Mm. And I felt that the book needs to have a happy ending. So I needed to wait a while <laughs> to ensure that I was going to keep my leg before mm. I wrote the book. And so it was years later in 2019 when, unfortunately, the osteomyelitis came back. Mm. And all of a sudden, my right leg was under threat again for amputation. And um, it's just coincidental that at a great bookstore here in Sarasota, Bookstore One, they had a community conversation format where they invited me as a new member to the Sarasota community to come in and talk about my life. Mm. And in that conversation, I talked about what I would put in the book if I would ever write one. And fortunately, in the audience was someone from Post Hill Press whose job was to find new authors. Mm. And she came up to me afterwards, gave me her card and said, I want to read that book. <laughs> and that's how it all started. So it was something that was uh, very magical to have an opportunity to write a book discovered in a bookstore. Mm. Seems to be, you know, uh, a good reason to write a book. Um, I'm in the process of putting the finishing touches on on my first book. And I've learned that when you write, it helps to sort of have an individual or, or persons in mind as to who you're writing for. When you wrote your book, uh, who would you describe it being most suited for? Who's the person this book is geared toward? You know, I would love for young African-American uh, men and women mm. uh, to read uh, this book. Uh, you know, I was born in 1954, the year of the Brown versus Board of Education decision would basically rule that uh, separate schools were unconstitutional. And so I've always lived my life with the knowledge that through education, I could accomplish anything. And that's really what this book goes mm. into. And yet it's the sports that I'll be remembered by, but it's the sports experiences, which are the uniting factors for individuals to read the book. So if you're fans mm. of Cincinnati Bengal football or NFL football, you'll want to read this book. If you're an Ivy Leaguer, especially from Dartmouth College, you will want to read this book. If you're from hard, scrappled community like I am from Flint, Michigan, you're going to want to read this book. Mm. It just occurred to me that I'm wearing my Indianapolis Colts cap. Maybe I should have chosen a different hat today. They had a great playoff game, and uh, you know they're, they're coming back. Uh, when I was playing, it was the uh, Baltimore Colts. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Uh, they're a great franchise and they're good for the Midwest. And I hope you uh, hope you get the chance to uh, cheer them on to a Super Bowl competition. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, the importance of education for you growing up. I would love to have you share a bit about a particular teacher who had an impact on you. I'm talking about Miss Chapel. 
Yes, uh, Ms. Chapel was a very special teacher. She was my third grade teacher. Mm. And I was already going to classes at Michigan School for the Deaf. I had my first ear operation at age two and my second ear operation at age four. So while I was in public school, I was always sat alphabetically. So my last name being Williams, I was always at the back of the class. She was the kind of teacher that would roam the classroom as she gave her lectures. And she would notice when she get to the back of the class, and all of a sudden I'd perk up and I'd respond. And then when she get to the front of the class, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm not listening to her. I'm looking around. So she put me in the front of the class so I could be closer to her so I could hear everything that she said. And that made a dramatic difference in my academics because then all the teachers did that. And I went from being a B.C. student to a straight A student and uh, managed to uh, then get the confidence as I uh, went to high school that, hey, I can continue on this academic plan and I'll earn a full ride scholarship to Michigan. That was my dream. I mm. wanted to go and be a Michigan Wolverine. Uh, I didn't think I was that good of a football player that I'd be, a, you know, an All-American in Michigan. But all I wanted to do was run out in the big house. Mm. I just wanted the 100,000 people and just see what that felt like. But unfortunately... As a senior in high school, Bo Schimbecker said I wasn't good enough to be a Wolverine. And that, fortunately, is how I ended up at Dartmouth College. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, some of your time there at Dartmouth. There was a point you were playing football and wrestling, I think, simultaneously or concurrently. And there were, in other ways, maybe grade-wise and, and some other things going on where you just felt like you weren't measuring up. What were some of the the options you considered as you pondered, gee, I don't think I'm measuring up to the level that I should be or want to be. Well, my freshman fall was my first football season. Mm. And on day one, I had great success on the football field. And I was captain of the team and ultimately became the most valuable player of uh, that uh, freshman team. The next quarter was winter term at Dartmouth College, which is in Hanover, New Hampshire. And so I had wrestled successfully in high school, going to the state heavyweight uh, uh, competition, lost in the first round, but I still was competitive. And I went out for the Dartmouth wrestling team. My first match I won, I pinned the guy. And uh, as I continued to wrestle, I uh, got sick. You know, mm -hmm. so cold up there, you know, when you're wrestling, you're, you're in the heat inside. You've got to walk across campus in the cold. I got sick. There was one night where I was very sick. I couldn't sleep. I'm looking out my window and I'm seeing all of the other dormitories with all their lights off. It's like everyone else is sleeping but me. What a competitive disadvantage I'm at. I got so depressed mm. because I knew I had to quit the wrestling team in order to put more time into the academics. And at that time, I really thought for the first time in my life that, you know, I'm just going to give it up. And I looked out my window to jump, but I was only on the second floor. And the snow was all the way halfway up to my window. So jumping out my window was not going to work. And so that's when I said, I'm going to go jump off the bridge mm. that spans Vermont and New Hampshire over the Connecticut River. And I started running. And as I'm running, you start going downhill. And I'm flying, mm. just flying. Like I've never been running before. And as I start getting to the bridge, 
I said, well, man, this feels too good. I'll, I'll jump on the way back. <laughs> and I ran over the bridge, touched the Norwich City sign, and started running back. And at that point in time, my reasons for ending my life were over. I was going to begin something new, turning a negative into a positive. I was going to run mm. every night at the same time. And that's what I did. Every time I was on campus when I wasn't playing a sport as my secret weapon, I was always in better shape than anyone I competed against. And then a couple years later, I went out for wrestling again after establishing a very solid academic study a schedule um, because I used at nighttime when it was quieter to study. Mm. Took all my classes in the afternoon. But I was able to come back and wrestle one final time. And that season, I became the Ivy League heavyweight wrestling champion, uh, pinning the uh, defending champion at Yale in front of Carm Coase, the head coach of uh, Yale, <laughs> and all the players. Um, and uh, so that was a memorable, positive. But it all stemmed from one of the most negative and darkest moments mm. of my academic life at Dartmouth. Now you became a bit of a legend at Yale in the process, I think, too. Um, you, you mentioned making an impact on the football field right away in, in college. At what point in your career did you feel like you might have a legitimate shot at being drafted into the NFL, and especially in light of the fact that, you know, in high school, I think you said, or maybe early college, Bo Schembechler said you, you weren't good enough. I obviously got a chip on my shoulder from <laughs> Bo Schembechler. But, but even then, I didn't imagine that all of a sudden I'd become a NFL prospect. And it really wasn't until after uh, the success that I enjoyed my sophomore year uh, when I came off the bench uh, after our team was 0-3 and got a chance to uh, start. And uh, all of a sudden, we just turned the fortunes around and we won all the rest of our games and became the Ivy League champions for the fifth straight year. And all of a sudden, as a sophomore, I was uh, elected to the All-Ivy team. Mm. And uh, Ivy League football was pretty, pretty good there. They had uh, Calvin Hill. There were a lot of competitive Ivy League players at mm. that particular point in time. And so the fact that other players from the Ivy League were excelling in the NFL, like Calvin Hill, I felt like maybe there's an opportunity. But even then, I really didn't think that it was anything more than pursuing a childhood dream. Mm. You know, I really wasn't putting my fortunes, my future fortunes into football. I was at Dartmouth College to continue to get a great education. And you got some interest from from the CFL. In fact, if I recall correctly, uh, the, the amount of money they were offering you when the draft came along was quite a bit more then you were going to get paid in the NFL, but you turned all that down because your dream was NFL, NFL, NFL all the way. My dream was NFL, NFL, NFL all the way. <laughs> my, my childhood hero was Jim Brown, and he became my hero because uh, he was my father's hero. And uh, I remember every time the Cleveland Browns would be playing a game, my father's going to be watching it, and I'd watch the game with uh, my father. And so it was uh, something special to sort of follow in those footsteps. I never uh, had that same kind of hero worship with any player in the mm. CFL. And uh, even though I was drafted in the first round by Toronto, and even though I, I went to a visit to Toronto 
And it was an exciting season. I was picked up in a Rolls Royce by Anthony Davis. And I said, this could be big time. <laughs> my dream was to play in the NFL where my parents could watch me play. Mm. And so that ultimately led me to waiting for the NFL draft. And even though I was drafted uh, in the third round of the NFL and offered less than half of what I was offered by the Toronto Argonauts, I knew my heart uh, was in playing in the NFL, proving that I could uh, compete at the highest level. Well, as I read your book, the level of dedication to the sport is just mind-blowing. You know, we learned earlier in this conversation that you got an early start when it came to medical procedures. Uh, over the course of your uh, 14-year NFL career, how many surgeries did you have? You know, that number vacillates between actual surgeries mm -hmm. where you're under anesthesia. And uh, for those, I've had 24. For mm -hmm. other procedures... Uh, like an embolization is another procedure that's like a surgery. You're having some kind of um, pain management mm -hmm. uh, to uh, pursue the procedure, but it's, it's not an actual uh, use of a scalpel. They're uh, actually uh, putting cameras inside you so that they can tie up uh, your artery that has uh, burst. Mm. And so uh, in total, I've had uh, 28 medical procedures. Wow. I would imagine you played in, in pain more times than you can count. Is that a safe, <laughs> safe assumption? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, pain threshold was something that I sort of developed uh, ongoing in uh, high school. Mm. And it became even more at the collegiate level. But once I got to the NFL, being a psychology major, I took on pain as trying to be my friend. Okay, rather than make pain your enemy, I'm going to make friends with pain. And so I used to go up to Wilmington, which uh, in the summers where the Cincinnati Bengals had our training camp. And uh, after my rookie year, no one else would room with me because I didn't use air conditioning. And I didn't use my bed. I slept on the floor. Oh, I wow. made for as Spartan a condition as possible for those six weeks before we actually start playing. So my mindset was on really uh, not expecting comfort. Mm. I'm expecting living with pain. And so that was another one of uh, my, uh, my use of uh, psychology, trying to turn a negative into a positive that uh, allowed me to deal with the uh, amazing amount of pain uh, in the NFL. You never played a game and didn't get hurt. And in most games, you re-injured whatever was already hurt. Mm. What did you learn from the city of Cincinnati about things like principles and character after uh, specifically that Super Bowl 16 loss? Yeah, the Super Bowl 16 loss, uh, the next day when we were just coming back, uh, obviously feeling very disappointed about losing that game to the San Francisco 49ers. When we drove back from the airport uh, to go to Spinney Field, which was, you know, our headquarters, all the cars that we passed, tens of thousands of cars just stopped and the people would get out of the cars and wave at us. Hmm. Wave at us as our bus traveled to Cincinnati. And then we, we decided to go to Fountain Square. And there had gathered thousands and thousands and thousands of additional fans. As far as you could see, 
As far as I in every single direction, there were fans out there in this cold. And they were cheering us on as if we had won the game. Mm. And on that occasion, I promised those fans that we were going to win a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And so that's why when we went to Super Bowl 23, seven years later, playing against the very same opponent, the San Francisco 49ers, it was on. You know, we had to win. And uh, at that time, because of my involvement in the interim uh, and really dedicating myself to the kids of Cincinnati and the fans of Cincinnati that, you know, supported us, I got so involved in so many different community projects that by the time we went to the next Super Bowl, I'm now a Cincinnati City Councilman. (laughs) And so it was a very memorable 1988. Wow. You know, you, you talked about having a chip on your shoulder. Uh, I think when you ended up at Disney, there was a bit of a, a chip on your shoulder too. Share a bit about your vision for the role you were hired to play and, and your passion for authenticity. Yeah, I mean, when I first uh, went to Disney, there were basically two divergent uh, philosophies. Mm. And uh, one was authentic sports, which is what I was promoting. And then there was a, a marketing business that would use the characters as uh, proponents of sports. So all of a sudden, you know, you, you'd have Coach Mickey or Coach Goofy, <laughs> and uh, you promote that, you know, sports are just really fun, you know, but people who really play it, it's serious. Right. They want to play in the best facilities. They want to play with uh, coordinated rules. They want an opportunity for fairness, and the opportunity to be crowned a, a champion is something that should be deserved. You learn honor and morals when you're playing sports because there are all kinds of things, business and sports-wise, where winning and losing is part of the proposition. But whatever that circumstances is, winning and losing, you can always turn the learnings from your competition mm. into all of what you need to compete successfully in the future. But you have to learn and deal with the reality today. You know, success doesn't happen without failure along the way, Correct. right? Well, I want to move to some non-book-related questions in the few minutes we have left. Reggie, give us a bit of insight into your history with reading we, and, and the impact that, that books have had on your life and maybe share how the, the habit of reading with intention and consistently um, has played a role in your success, if it indeed has. Oh, it definitely has. Um, I would say... The earliest that I thought about writing a book was when I was in elementary school. In those days, my mom used to uh, drop us off to the Flint Public Library every Saturday. And I'd spend at least eight hours every Saturday Mm -hmm. reading books. And I would uh, explore the library. I'd walk up different aisles that have different subject matters. And I'd learn about different things. And over a period of time, I sort of said, man, one day, one day, I hope to see my book in my library. Mm. And um, I remember one time coming out when my mom had picked me up and tell her, mom, I'm going to write a book one day. And she looked at me and said, yes, I know you are, son. But she was a supportive mom. But it was because she read that encouraged all of the boys, there were three boys, to read. Because I was also born hearing impaired, because of reading, you didn't have to hear the sounds. You could learn on the same level as anyone else. So Mm. it became 
a value added part of my routine. Mm, that's that's fascinating. What might be a book or two over the course of your career that you've read that have you would say has had an impact on you? Is there one or two that stick out? Almost every book by Muhammad Ali. You know, he's mm. one of my heroes. I had a chance to meet him. He was instrumental in uh, convincing me to play in the NFL, who basically said, son, pursue your dreams. Every disappointment is an opportunity for you to get better. So I love reading about every single aspect of Muhammad Ali's life. Well, finally, uh, Reggie, as you look ahead to this year, what's ahead for you and your team uh, that you're excited about and, and able to share? Well, I'm pleased to share that I've been invited to give a TEDx College Park talk. Wow. It will be uh, March 19th. I'm uh, in the process of writing the speech right now. Uh, The whole theme of this TED talk is uh, inequality. And Mm. and basically, how do the haves provide more to the have-nots? And my subject matter will be about sports. And uh, my belief that sports is one of the opportunity to level the playing field, to create more opportunity and equity in the future for more kids. Mm, I love it. I can't wait to see them post that talk online eventually so I can I can watch that. Well, the book, again, is called Resilient by Nature, Reflections from a Life of Winning on and Off the Football Field. His name is Reggie Williams. Reggie, such a treat to talk to you today. Thank you so much for giving of your time so freely and appearing here today on the on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. I uh, really am a big fan of you and continue success. It can only make the future better, learning more about the interesting opportunities uh, in this universe. Uh, we all have to be forward thinking, uh, but be guided by the lessons that history does provide. If you'd like to learn more about Reggie's book, connect with him online or dig into those resources we talked about, you can find all of that at the show notes page I've created on my website just for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 358 for episode 358. Would you consider pre-ordering my book on Amazon? Go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book or simply go to amazon.com and search Read to Lead. I would very much appreciate your pre-ordering the book now. And thanks in advance. Next week, we'll be hearing from Mitzi Perdue, whose family founded the Sheraton Hotel chain and whose late husband founded the Perdue Chicken Company. She's got a book of her own out. We'll talk about that next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. With the drag and drop theme editor, we don't need to hire a developer to do any coding. Each theme is automatically optimized on mobile. It's incredible. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today. 